A reading from Leviticus 19, verses 9 through 18. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The word of the Lord. Now while Paul was waiting for them in, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the, first, this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Big question I have is, who are the real change agents of a culture? Now, for good or for bad, culture is impacted the most, the most, by those on the fringe of the culture. We often expect culture to be impacted from an, an epicenter of power outward. But that is not the biblical perspective on cultural change. The Bible calls for a third cultural perspective, of a third cult, for a third cultural engagement, one that comes from the fringe. If there is one statement that encapsulates the core value of Christianity's third cultural engagement, it would have to be Matthew 22, 36 to 40. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On all the law and the prophets, they hang on these two commandments. We talk a lot about mission or we hear a lot of talk about mission and action of mission and more often than not we use and or we hear or we use terms like visionary, passionate, postmodern when it comes to mission in action. However, when we deconstruct all of that and when we break it down the mission is really, really clear this morning because sometimes the wisdom of man is the foolishness of God. And so if we really break it down, the mission is really clear. The what is really clear, the how is really clear, and the who is really clear. We don't have to recreate anything. It's already been stated in a simple way. So what are we supposed to do? What's the mission? Love God and to love our neighbour. What's the how? Love. What's the who? Your neighbour. The problem is our definition of neighbour. Jesus defines a neighbour in the story of the Good Samaritan. In that story, a Samaritan loved a Jew. We know the story, don't we? There's a man travelling from Jerusalem to Jericho and he is beaten and, 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 and left for dead at the side of the road uh, by robbers. And so who walks past him first? It was a priest, wasn't it? A priest walks past him first, doesn't want to get involved. A Levite comes along, again, doesn't want to get involved. And a Samaritan, a hater of Jews, comes and binds his wounds, 
takes him to a hotel and says to the keeper of the hotel, if, if, if it costs any more, I'll come back and I'll cover the bill. So a Samaritan loved on a Jew, someone he hated, someone his cultural culture hated, and vice versa. In America, we define neighbour as someone like us in our neighbourhood, don't we? But when Jesus told that story about the Good Samaritan, Although it's not explicit in our Western culture, we don't get that right away. But in Eastern culture, people got it loud and clear. People still get it loud and clear. And it reverberates in their souls. A neighbour is someone that you would hate. It's someone who you would not want to be around. It's someone that is unforgivable to you. That you would not want your son or your daughter to marry. And so the genius and the brilliance of the church, and when the church becomes most luminous and, and, it's, and it, at its brightest, is when we can love someone not like us. When you can love someone not like you. It's a really big deal when we have a church full of people like us, okay? It's, it, it's a big deal when that happens, but because the world doesn't take notice of that, the world doesn't take notice uh, of, of, of a big church that's all the same. We're all like each other, but the world does take notice when Mother Teresa gives up her whole life and loves dying people in India. The world takes notice of that. The world takes notice when Nelson Mandela is in prison for 30 years on Robinson's Island in a small cell and moves the same rocks from one side of the island back to the other and then does the same way and then, then says and preaches, we all need to forgive. Jesus knew what he was talking about. He said, if you want to impact the world, if you want to impact your community, and be missional. Jesus told us, he said, love God, love your neighbour. Someone not like you. But Pastor Neil, that's really hard. Yes, it is. Let's bring it closer to home. Let me share something from my life. My father, this will be a picture of him up the back. My father was an amazing man. He was he was a real-life Crocodile Dundee. And if you don't know who Crocodile Dundee is, ask someone who's over 50. When I was a kid, he would take me hunting and we would live off the land for days on end. Uh, he was also a Mr. Fix-It. And all the kids in our neighbourhood would come to our home and get their bikes fixed or some broken part welded back together onto, the, onto their minibike or onto their, onto their bicycles. However, there was a dark side to my father, a side that liked to drink at bars, a side that liked to womanise, a side that liked to get into fistfights. I can still remember sitting in my bedroom listening to the arguments and seeing my mother's split lip and torn clothes. The straw that broke the camel's back was when my mother was diagnosed with bowel cancer. It was aggressive and things didn't go well for her, so uh, she chose to have uh, an in-home nursing service to palliatively care for her during her last days and last months on earth. And during that time, my father had an affair with the attending nurse uh, from the nursing service. 
right while my mother was dying. I hated my father from that day on. I hated him. I couldn't stand him. Years and years passed by and God prompted me about my father. The Holy Spirit was saying, hey, Neil, you need to love your dad. And I remember saying, God, I have no feelings for him. And it wouldn't, and, and, and it wouldn't be honest and it wouldn't be authentic. And God said, do you think my son felt like that going to the cross? He said, let this cup pass from me. Remember? So love your dad. Choose to love him. It's not about feelings. It's about those feelings. And, and, and it's not about feelings, but those feelings did come in, in 2013 after several phone calls with my dad and dealing with his shame and my hatred. I made, I made a choice to forgive. I made a choice to love. My dad died in 2015. Before he died, he trusted me to be the executor of his estate. To this day, I don't know if that was a curse or a blessing, but I was able to finalise his earthly existence and be the son to him that I never was while he was alive. My calling was and still is to love my neighbour, my dad, someone who is not like me. Now, we can have the argument about multiculturalism, we can have the argument about diversity, but people are sick of all that kind of discussion now. The truth is, it's not about the colour of the skin or the geography or the proximity. The issue is, can you love someone different from you? Can you love someone different from you? That's the genius of Jesus and the true beauty of the church. So how do we go about expressing that love? In 2023, your church vestry thought about this and they put together a mission action plan. Now, this is not the be-all and end-all, but it's a start. It's a guide or a pattern. We looked at material like Dave Gibbons' book called The Monkey and the Fish, and we looked at LISIG, which is an acronym for Leading Your Church into Growth. It starts to answer the question, how do we go about expressing that love? How do we go about, as a church and individually, growing our missional muscles? How do we go about, as a church and individually, growing our spiritual muscles? How do we go about, as a church and individually, growing our attendance? How do we live it out? How do we live out this genius of Jesus as a church in South Akron? This mission action plan, or MAP, which we'll we can shorten it down to MAP, helps us frame several answers to those three main questions. How do we fully engage in missional growth? How do we fully engage in spiritual growth? And how do we fully engage in numerical growth? How do we fully engage in Jesus' third cultural perspective? In a place where we love God and love neighbour, both as a church and as individuals. So... Love God, love people. In our busy lives, we're perhaps silenced. We've silenced the second part of this commandment. 
but third cultural living places the the well-being of others above our own because of the love of God. Third culture is about living as a son or a daughter of the king. It's not about being religious and it's not about being irreligious. It's not about morality and it's not about immorality. It's about God's love regulating every part of your life, every part of your living, both vertically and horizontally. It's about living out of intimacy with God before you live out your involvement with people. So when I come into a, in a situation in my life and the, the, the connections I have with people, I'm actually able to bring human need into what God has already been speaking to me about. And in doing so, I'm inviting people into my relationship with God. I'm not arguing with them and trying to get them to believe what I believe. I'm inviting them into my relationship with God. I'm inviting the other into my relationship. Now, that means helping them over two hurdles this morning. The first one is Jesus, and the second one is the church. The Jesus hurdle is the easiest one. The church hurdle is not so easy. It has the potential to be a huge stumbling block because it's about institutional perceptions and human relationships. And so our mission action plan, our map, is a guide to help you with the church hurdle problem. I can already hear the question. Now, all that sounds great in theory, Pastor. Where do I start and how do I apply it? How do I understand it? Now, as you read the book of Acts, it looks as if the superstars are the apostles, particularly Peter and Paul. But of course, that's a misreading of the book of Acts. The real superstar of the action is still Jesus. It's the continual acts of his Holy Spirit. It's the continuation of his acts by the Holy Spirit through Christ, Christ's Spirit. And so we find no religious blueprint in the book of Acts that should be meticulously followed with every detail. But there are models, there are modes and examples of how they lived their lives. So how do we live out a gospel culture, this third culture in the 21st century? Because we are not in Jerusalem. We are in Akron. The book of Acts gives us an extraordinary insight in how to live this third cultural principle out. How the apostles, faithful to the message always, lived and told the gospel in such an extraordinarily different way to very different groups of people. The apostle Paul is one that we will highlight this morning because he is Jesus' apostle to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish world. The historian Luke, who is the writer of the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts, he, there's three great sermons that Luke gives us and wants us to see. One, each one is an example or a model of how the apostles communicated to three key groups of people in the 
first century. Acts 13, the sermon uh, given to the Jews, is full of Old Testament quotations. It begins by speaking about God of our fathers. It tells the story of Abraham and the patriarchs. Acts chapter 20, the second sermon, where Paul explains the heart of the gospel of his ministry to the Ephesians, both the unbelievers and, 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 and uh, amongst also the church. Paul explains that the church must be cared for because it was brought by the blood of Jesus. And then we have Acts chapter 17, which gives us a third model or a third culture. Before we get into Acts chapter 17, let me digress just for a moment. The Apostle Paul, his whole approach is unrecognisable in Acts chapter 17, in the way that he does. In Acts chapter 13, it's Old Testament quote after Old Testament quote after Old Testament quote. But in Acts chapter 17, his sermon, there's not one mention of a biblical verse in his sermon. He doesn't quote the Bible. What does he quote? He quotes two pagan, prop, uh, two pagan poets and he quotes an inscription on an idolatrous altar. Now, if you read Paul's Acts 17 sermon carefully, if you read that carefully, and we will do, we'll go through it, you will see it follows Psalm 96, which was read out. Psalm 96 is the skeleton for his sermon to the Ephesians. The Ephesians, the, the Ephesians, sorry. And the sermon is thoroughly biblical in thought, but there is nothing of the Bible in the text. However... There is a lot of pagan stuff, what he says. So what Luke is recording in Acts chapter 17 is the apostles' ability to, to, to be true to the gospel and the culture of the gospel at the same time. Paul is doing what Jesus said for him to do and for us to do, and that is to love people. He therefore listens very carefully before he communicates. He understands the world he is living in. So let's look at one of many third cultural models. This one's found in, in Acts chapter 17 and how Paul ministers to the Ephesians. Have I said that right? The, the people in Athens, the Athenians, there we go. Athens was, uh, 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 was the centre of the ancient world. Athens had wonderful architecture. Athens was an elegant city. It was the centre of democracy and politics. Athens was uh, the centre of theatre and music. Athens was pluralistic. Uh, you could believe anything that you wanted. Athens was sensual and dedicated to pleasure. Sounds a bit like the USA at the moment right now, doesn't it? So let's look at how Paul breaks through this culture using a third culture. Firstly, let's look at Paul's secret to getting understanding. Verse 16 says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Verse 22 says, Paul then stood up in the meeting at the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you were very religious. For I... For as I walked around and looked carefully 
at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. So let us not pass over too quickly verse 16 and verse 22, the words, when I saw, and the words, looked carefully. Paul was walking around and checking out all the idols in Athens. This provoked his spirit because Paul knew if people are not worshipping the true and living God, they are worshipping something else. Paul is furious that God is being ripped off and that credit and hope is being placed in falsehood. He says, I see that you are very religious. I see that you are religious and I have been examining. That's what he's saying. I I see that you are religious and I have been examining. My suggestion to you this morning, the key to understanding is to get involved in your local Athens. This may take shape of community groups. It may be friends. It may be workmates. It may be recreational friends. Throw yourself into with your eyes wide open, not just your judgmental eyes, but actually examine, actually observe and study. This is what Paul did. This is why his sermon or his witness is so different The outcome is amazing because of Paul, Christianity gets its first hearing in a pagan culture. All because he studied the culture. Paul noticed what was going on underneath, what people were believing. The scripture tells us he was overwhelmed by the number of idols. William Barclay said this, he said, It was said that there were more statues of gods in Athens than in all the rest of Greece put together. And that in Athens, it was easier to meet a god than a man. Historians tell us that there were around 30,000 statues of the Athenian gods scattered throughout the city. The human population at the time of Paul's visit was in excess of 10,000. So you can see these people were very religious people and the idols were replacing the living God. So as we consider this thought, we must understand that humanity has a love affair with ritual and religion. Religious ritual is very attractive to the human personality. There is something about our fallen nature that loves ritual. There is something about something in our fallen nature that loves to fasten onto and lock onto religion. Paul Tillich says these words. He says, The universal nature of man is instinctually homo religiano. Religion defines human beings' ultimate concerns. He goes on to say, What follows in this definition of religion is that worldviews such as atheism, agnosticism, secular humanism, scientism and Buddhism can be thoroughly held to be religious or religions. This broad definition focuses more on the subject or the one who believes than on the actual content or proposal doctrine that is adhered to. What Paul Tillich is saying is that homo sapiens will grasp at anything and ritualize it. We are homo religiano. 
as a civilization, we have yet to meet or discover any culture where anywhere in the world, at any time in world history, that is not deeply religious. There is something about the human race. We are religious by nature. The reason, uh, the, the reason is highlighted in, in Paul's sermon in verses 26 to 27. He talks about God making humans to dwell and enjoy the earth. Verse 27 says, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Humans are inevitably religious, even the so-called atheists. First John chapter 5, verse 21 says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. So what is an idol? Things that we put our trust in. Things that we will put our hope in. Things that make us think in our minds and in our hearts that will keep me secure. This thing will keep me secure. You can see what, idol, what, what your idol is this morning by the sort of things that you worry about. You can see what your idol is this morning really easily by where you and how you spend your money. The difference between the Athenians and their culture and American culture is we are not free to talk about it. The crazy thing is people are still religious creatures in our Western culture, even, through, even though the speech on religious matters is often banned. It's a banned subject. Isn't it? You go to a, 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 a dinner party and the, what, what can't you talk about? Religion and politics, right? So, so uh, in our Western culture, religious matters are often banned subjects, predominantly through peer group pressure and cultural pressures. But the fact still remains, every single person outside of these four walls is still thinking religious thoughts, even at this very moment. They are frightened to death. They are frightened of death. They are trying to work out uh, and they're thinking, is this all there is? Is this, am I born to die? Is this all there is? They have feelings of guilt. They have feelings of shame. They have feelings of hopelessness. Even amongst the most brassy of them out there, they all have these feelings. These are religious thoughts. Because in the end, people are still human no matter what nonsense comes out of their mouths and what thoughts they put together, the trouble in our culture is that it's just not cool to talk about it. But people are very religious by nature. And this is what Paul the Apostle assumes in, his te in the text that we're about to read. He studies. He studies the situation he finds that, he studies the situation that he finds himself in. So Paul sees and observes and he goes into the city. He goes to the marketplaces where the idolaters, the common people, hung around and they argued. They talked about stuff. Where they talked. Where they had their coffee and donuts. Verse 17 says, As well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. So this is what Paul did. He went day by day into the marketplace and talked with the people who were there. 
Then Paul spends some time with the philosophers in verse 18, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans and the Stoics were very similar in some ways. I'm not going to waste your time telling you about the difference between these guys. That's what the internet's for, and you can go and have a look at that for yourself. But the Epicureans' uh, great commitment in life was to pleasure. They were very thoughtful about their pleasure. Don't get too drunk. Don't eat too much. Um, uh, intelligent and moderate hedonism. That's what it was. Don't, don't, don't go overboard. So it's not too, not, you know, if you get a hangover, then it's not pleasurable. They, they, they believed in the gods, but their gods were not to be feared. They were far removed and bored with the human race. They believed there was no sin or judgment. Sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? Then there's the Stoics who believed... <coughs> that life was full of suffering and their determination was not to be broken by the suffering. They had a whole way of how to think through things that worried them, starting with the worst case scenario and then working their way down. And they were never disappointed. Well, if you're always going to be worried about suffering, you're never going to be disappointed, are you? And they lived bodily in the face of suffering. They believed that the gods were more involved, but they couldn't be trusted. The Stoics believed that thinking and reasoning and courage rule their lives rather than than petty emotions like fear. Again, there are some parallels to a postmodern life in the United States here. So Paul walks into this great diversity and and it's no different for us today. A third cultural person seeks to understand the world in which they live. Our mission action plan suggests that we do what the Apostle Paul did. Love God, love people. Love your neighbour and love your God enough to study the people who you're mixing with. You will find that there are extreme differences between the people in your neighbourhood the people in your workplace and the people in the schools you go to perhaps or the people around you, you will find extreme differences. But love your neighbour and love God enough to study the people you mix with. Let's look at the diversity of reaction. Verse 18, the first part of verse 18 says, Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Other people were a little bit more positive. They said in the later half of verse 18, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. In verse 21, Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, makes an editor's note about the Athenians and says they were absorbed with novelties and their great enemy was boredom. So new ideas got their hearing, but some of them mocked, some of them laughed and thought he was an idiot. However, some of them talked with him. And at the end of verse 8, it tells us he was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So here is where the rubber meets the road this morning. When Paul had a chance to speak, he spoke about Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19 says, Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. So what is the Areopagus? 
and why did they take him there? Now, as we discussed earlier, Athens had 30,000 gods with various beliefs around each one of them. And as we know, there is a lot of money in religion, right? There's a lot of money in religion. And in the ancient world, it was no different. So the Areopagus was like the regulator of religion. It's, it, it, it was their job to make sure that religion was well run. So they took Paul to have his religion checked out by the officiating body, which is called the Areopagus. They wanted to see if it was okay to speak this kind of nonsense in such a great city. Before we move on and look at um, the, Apostles, the, the Apostle Paul's sermon, let me make a couple of brief points about us, about you and me, as we live in our Athens. In chapters 2, 3 and 5 of our Mission Action Plan, this is highlighted. This part where we're going to talk about is highlighted. One of the, the problems that's rife in churches across the USA is Christians spend little time or no time with unsaved people. Christians are amongst the most busiest people in American life. We take our work seriously because we honour God by doing our work properly. We take our families seriously. We support them. We train them many times more than unsafe families do. We are very often involved in church stuff. We take time each day to have quiet times. We, we, we can end up being so busy that we actually come across as unfriendly to our unsaved workmates and to our unsaved associates. And what that says to our associates is they must have a wonderful life. I think I will just become a Christian. No. No. It raises questions like, do they not like us? Do they not like us? They're snobs. Are they not, are they not very, they're not very friendly, are they? That's the sort of stuff. Are they not friendly? So we need to try and spend more time with our non-Christian friends. If, if you don't have any non-Christian friends, I don't think that's a good thing. If you have the truth of the gospel, just like Paul did, you need to get to Athens. Hang out with people that need to hear the gospel. Listen and learn. They don't think the way that you think. Some of them have lots of religious thoughts. Some of them have very deep religious histories. Some of them are fighting really hard to ignore God. The point is, do as Paul did and hang out with unsaved people. Observe them. Examine them what they are thinking so that when you have a chance to speak you will be able to speak their language as we look at the gospels jesus drew from different pictures jesus drew from different images jesus drew from different styles for example the woman at the well jesus talks about himself as water jesus always spoke so close to the context so what i'm saying is that we see the model of this third culture this morning. It's about thinking. 
and living out the gospel. So where is your Athens at the moment? Secondly, let's look at the actual sermon that Paul preached when he is dragged before the religious police in the Areopagus. Look at where he starts. In stark contrast to Acts chapter 15, where it's all about the God of our fathers, the God of the history of Israel. Look where he starts. He says, Men of Athens, I see that you are very religious, for I have walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. So Paul does the most obvious thing in the world for those interested in communication and being heard. He starts where they are. He doesn't start talking about Jerusalem. He starts about talking about Athens. He talks about their unknown God and starts where they are. In, 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 the verse, in verses 24 to 30, Paul really connects with the religious understanding of many. He's using language and phrases that the Athenians understand. He, he's going through talking about uh, God, and then he goes through and talks about God the Father, who does not live in temples built of hands, who he is not served by human hands as, he is, as, as if he needs anything. As, as some of uh, your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold, silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skills. So Paul has got their attention now. He's on topic. He is touching on the various concerns that they have. But the key point and the painful point where he gets pushback and where he gets friction is in verse 31. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. In the end, the big thing Paul wants to talk about is the judgment of mankind, all mankind. This is not an idea that the Greeks would have shared. He, but he says, it, he says it anyway, even though they did not share this idea. He says it anyway. Why does he say it? Because it's part of the gospel narrative. Judgment is not the first cab off the rank, but if you care about people, it needs to be said that people will stand before God and be judged. This is an important theme in Scripture when the, when the apostles meet non, the non-Jewish world. So the first sermon preached to the Gentiles is preached by the Apostle Peter in, in Acts chapter 10. And he has told uh, a bit of, of the story of Jesus and his resurrection to a guy whose name is Cornelius. But in Acts chapter 10, verse 42, he, he, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, Jesus, is the one whom God has appointed. Now, what do you think God wants the world to know about Jesus? That he, is appoint, that, that he appointed him as saviour and that he's a really nice bloke. 
that he is the lover of my soul and that he is the friend of the sinner. Didn't say that, did he? He commands us to preach to people and to testify that he, Jesus, is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. Here it is, Jesus, the resurrected one. Tell all people that I am the judge of the living and of the dead. That there is a day of judgment. That everyone has a day in court and they will be tried. But not by the law, not by the law of the land, but by the king, by the owner of all things. And this is what Paul is saying to the Athenians. In spite of their glory, they will have a day of humility when they will stand before God the judge. Now this is a very powerful and effective way to speak to modern people. We back off from it. We back off from it because people don't like it and, and are allergic to it. Why? Because they feel the weight of it. It's a weighty thing. They feel the weight of it. But it's very powerful and effective. It's a very powerful and effective way to speak to modern people today. Jesus is the great preacher of judgment and hell in the Gospels. Eleven of the twelve times the word hell is used in the New Testament. It comes from the lips of Jesus because he sees the most, he sees the most clearly and loves the most deeply. So he talks about it. If we would do a quick straw poll here today, in many cases, not all, but in many cases, your conversation, or your conversion, sorry, your conversion to Christianity would have been kick-started in some way by your critical thinking on or about God's judgment. That would be true. As an unbeliever, the love of God meant nothing to me. I didn't need his love. I had lots of love from friends and family. But when, it began, but, but when it began to sink in that I would actually have to stand before God and have an unavoidable future appointment, that got my attention. That irritated me. It made me angry. It was... It, 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 that it was... That it, that's what, and that's what judgment does this morning, beloved. That's what judgment does. If it is real and, and we are, are commended to say it and it is very effective, but it's going to take guts to do that. It's going to take guts to show real love. So as we close, let's have a look at the response. The legend of the Areopagus is this. Apollo at the founding of the Areopagus, said this. He said, When the dust has soaked up a person's blood, once he is dead, there is no resurrection. So based in and on that myth was the birth of democracy and justice for all. Because the Greeks believed that there was no resurrection. So a man deserves justice on planet Earth. So let's trust the Apostle Paul as he tackles this in his last point of his sermon, verses 31 to 32. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by a man he has appointed. He has given proof 
of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about this, the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Now, when you hear people mock Christianity because they say they are modern people, ignore it. It's only an excuse. There are three wonderful responses. Because in Athens and in America, people have all sorts of different views. And we listen to them and we try to understand them. We then um, appropriately talk about Jesus when we have that opportunity. Our text says, some began to sneer. Others, in verse 32, we want to hear you again on this subject. We are not convinced, but... We want to hear and know more about this. And in verse 34, it says that Paul left that council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Diocinus, a member of the Areopagus, a woman named uh, Demarius, and a number of others. In an adversarial and litigious uh, atmosphere, Paul is dragged before the religious court in Athens. He, he, he laughed, he's, he's laughed out of that court and in doing so, a handful of people became Christians. Why? Paul embodied a third culture because he had loved them enough to understand them. God, in the end, will use this gospel to save people. For most it will be a long-term project. In a nutshell, the third culture response of our mission action plan is this, to seek, to love, to be with, to make time for, to enjoy the company of people who aren't Christians, to learn and understand them, and to pray that you will have the courage to speak when God gives you the chance. Let us pray. Heaven, it is a great thing you have done. It is an unthinkable thing that you have sent your only son to live and die for us, that we will see him as our judge. And all those we live with and work with, all our friends and our enemies, will all stand before him. Lord, we pray in thanks for those who brought this message to us. Lord, and you know how weak and unworthy we are to serve you and how we have been cowards. We pray that you will help us take seriously the opportunity to reconstruct our life, that you would help us to love our neighbour enough to study them and to listen and to seek to understand what they are thinking. Give us such a relaxed knowledge of Jesus that we would learn to speak of him to others. Lord, we are not very good at this, but you are very good at changing people. And we pray that you would take this and use us for your glory and for the, and for the good of our neighbour. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.